Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Ryan Olson of Whitebone Creations. Sounds like you've had a heck of adventure the last uh, 30 days there, Mr. Ryan. How are you? I am great, man. I uh, I feel plum spoiled after getting back from from Africa, man. I'm awesome. Yeah, you know, I think we talked uh, right before you were headed to Africa and um, you were leaving some red hot fishing uh, to to get out there to Africa. Uh, I'm curious, did you, before you headed out, did you catch any unbelievable days? And then have you fished since you've gotten back? Uh, you know, before we left, we fished hard, but I was hoping to get those uh, yellowtail and some of the tuna stuff that's here. And I did not capitalize on that stuff, um, although it is still here and still happening. Um, but I did get out last night and went to our classic bass stuff down there, Long Beach Harbor, the break wall. And we didn't have a bang up night. I just fished with a friend, but uh, it meant just felt right to get out. You know, it's hard having two loves. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. You're torn between hunting and fishing in these hunting in other countries during their winter and our summers there's there's no break anymore right it's it's all hunting and all fishing and um i don't know man i'm i'm always torn i want to do it all full time that's what i want to do yeah i'm kind of with you on that i love uh, both of them and it's hard to leave you know it's great when they don't overlap each other as far as, you know, the prime seasons. It's great when you can catch, you know, prime hunting season and prime fishing, but when they overlap, it's tough. Um, what has been going on in talking to your buddies out there, um, you know, with, with the yellowtail and, and, uh, out there off the coast of California and off the coast of Northern Mexico, has it been really good season or what's the story? Yeah, it's been an epic season. And again, just conversation with those guys, lots of friends doing it. Um, you know, like, uh, April 1st, those tuna showed up down here and they were off a ways and they've progressively worked their way closer to, um, San Clemente Island. So no matter where you're coming from, right before you get to San Clemente, there's tuna sitting out there and they just grew from the 40s, 50s, 70s, 100s. Now they're in the 250s. These guys are catching tuna that are just unheard of in this water. Um, and then I heard just right here in Huntington last couple of days, they started having some Dorado show up in the kelp here, you know, in that, what we call right off the beach stuff, that, that, three to five miles offshore right there. And it's, it's happening and I'm excited to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to get out tomorrow with some family and see if we can't capitalize on a little of that, but it's, it just hasn't slowed down. Everything I've heard is, it's just, it's nutty. They're not hard to find. We're just in that transition right now where they're, they're getting hard to catch. We've been poking them for a long time and they're starting to get a little savvy. So how much longer will the bite, uh, quote, quote, unquote, be on, and then when will it subside? I think that mid-September is probably when things will peter out, um, and that's just a guess, but last year that was about what happened. You know, we kind of, we fished hard right up until like, you know, the dove season, September 1, came back and got them for about a week, and then pff, it was kind of over. Gotcha, gotcha. Then you hang it up, and then it becomes hunting season. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, and I, dude, I'm telling you, just like you said, too, it's so hard to try and focus on both of them at the same time. There's just two completely different things. And, uh, 
<laughs> last night I was trying to manage that, right? From sitting in the back of the truck in South Africa to bounce around some rough seas. It's just, you kind of got to, you got to take a few trips to get your head back in the game. Yeah, I've been uh, doing a lot of fishing up here in Colorado, and um, we've got some stretches where uh, some of these rivers are getting really, really small. And I've I've actually um, purchased a couple rafts this summer, uh, different rafts, uh, kind of specialty rafts for smaller water, and um, got one boat that's a nine foot eight, uh, five foot wide, uh, eighteen inch tube that. We've been able to take in really, really low water and, you know, bounce around on the rocks a little bit and catch some, you know, really good days fishing. And, um, you know, the, at the same time, I've got elk hunting on my mind with this uh, elk tag on the beaver and, and um, you know, trying to uh, hike and, and, and get in as good a shape as I possibly can. And so some days, you know, I'm I'm rowing for six or eight hours and then hiking for three or four hours. So it's, it's just been fun, but my mind is going back and forth between, <laughs> you know, catching fish and where to, where to go and when to go and when is prime time to, you know, trying to shoot my bow and get everything uh, ready. So it's just, uh, I guess it's a dilemma that us uh, sportsmen <laughs> face, right? All too well, man. Yeah. I've been keeping tabs on you on Instagram and seeing all the stuff you got going on, man. It looks fun. And uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday that was on the beaver. This um, buddy of mine, he drew the sportsman's tag. So he can hunt mountain goats anywhere in the state. And uh, he was up there and actually saw some really big bulls. And I said, uh, any information would help, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's been amazing. Uh, I've gotten all sorts of responses um, and people on Instagram and sending me emails and such uh, hearing that I've got the tag. And it's amazing all the willingness of, of people, you know, hey, I saw a big bull over here and hey, I saw a big bull over there. And it's pretty neat to see that uh, fraternity uh, where, you know, there's only seven limited entry tags uh, on the beaver for elk. Uh, granted, there are spike and cow hunters and archery deer hunters. Um, but it, it seems as though everybody's willing to tell you where they've seen a big bull. And so from the sounds of it, there's a lot of big bulls running around. So it should be, should be a fun hunt. I'm excited. Uh, I should be ready both mentally and physically and, uh, just going to enjoy it. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I want to talk to you about your trip to South Africa, um, and kind of hear, all of the ins and outs of, of travel and the culture and, you know, the hunting and the animals and, you know, some of the things that, uh, that, uh, you know, you found to be different and, uh, some of the things you found to be just the same. And so it's going to be a fun talk, talk here. Why don't you tell the listeners, uh, about your opportunity to head over there and, and, uh, kind of where you went and just kind of walk us through it and I'll kind of pick away as, as we go. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so I had a good friend of mine um, actually make me an offer on November of last year. Said he was putting together a trip for him and his family uh, to South Africa. He's got a good hunting friend of his that had been over there 13 or 14 times. And, you know, his boys are in that uh, age range of like 26, 24, 22. Kind of in that, you know, harder and harder to get them anywhere as a family. Um, and so he'd been planning this for a while and he just wanted to be able to capture that memory 
of being over there with his family. Um, and, and that's what I do. And I'd love the opportunity to go do that. So, um, so essentially we made an arrangement and that's how it went. And we were going to do, we did, um, I think it was 11 days, 10 or 11 days um, in the lower part of the Eastern Cape of South Africa in uh, with an outfitter called Blaukrantz, big ranch, uh, 100,000 acres, fantastic people. And then we did seven days uh, further up in the East Cape in a place they call the Karoo, uh, at a place called Tam Safaris. And uh, <clears throat> I met them both at the uh, Safari Club show and at the expo there in Utah and just a class operation and only been out of the country a couple places, you know, for me personally, Mexico, and then last year, New Zealand. Um, and I love the travel, but I'm not super versed, right? I haven't been all over the world. I'm not a, just a, a loaded passport guy, right? I've only done <laughs> so much. So there's a little bit of, um, of a learning curve in going to these places and I really didn't know what to expect. I know we talked just briefly, but I've never been the type that had a burning desire to go to Africa. You know, hunting in North America, maybe only hunting seven or eight states here in North America. I just, I know it. I understand it. It helps drive me. And to look at somebody holding a, you know, an eland or a kudu, it's a beautiful animal, but I don't know enough about it to make me kind of have that desire to go. So, uh huh. Like everybody says, once you go, you're going to want to go back. And man, I could go back tomorrow. My my wife would tell you differently now that I've been gone for 18 days, but <laughs> I could go back tomorrow. So, so where did you fly out of? So we, uh, you know, I'm down here in, in Huntington Beach. We're all um, Orange County guys. So we booked, we flew out of LAX and we fly into Atlanta. So that's, you know, that's four and a half hours there. Um, and that's a, you know, obviously a domestic flight. And then Atlanta to Johannesburg, which is an international flight, that's 14 and a half, almost 15. That's where, you know, you're going to go through customs and all that stuff. And we did travel with guns. Um, my advice is make sure you give yourself plenty of time in all those places, especially with the guns. Um, we can kind of come back to it, but my advice is if you're not hung up on your exact weapon, don't fly with your guns. The outfitters have fantastic weapons. You can pay X amount for uh, you know, ammunition. You're going to shoot their guns. They're going to get them zeroed before you go. Unless you're looking to have your gun in the trophy shot or something like that, um, I wouldn't bring it. I just think it's a gigantic hassle. It really, it really was difficult. Um, this, you know, the gentleman that booked with us, he booked with Gracie Travel. Gracie Travel is like a like a booking agent down there in South Africa. I think they're based out of Texas. Um, and to be real honest, I think that, that was probably the best money he spent because when we got into a place we were unfamiliar, they were there holding your hand, walking you through. Everything from checking bags to going to the hotel, these people were on it, um, and it's what they do. It's it's what they do. So it was good to see. So Atlanta to Johannesburg, uh, fourteen and a half, fifteen hours. 
How many movies did you watch? A bunch. A bunch. <laughs> I actually bought a computer because I'm like, oh, I'll just do a bunch of the video editing when I was there. Uh, that didn't happen at all. I, yeah. <laughs> it didn't happen. And you can't sleep on a flight like that real well, right? You're, yeah. It's just, it's just fitful, right? It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, you know, everybody's got to pee. And I always joke that there's not enough deodorant on planet Earth to make that plane right, right? <laughs> <laughs> Too many bodies. Uh-huh. But it was uh that part, you know, went through painlessly and we did an overnight in Johannesburg um just because of the time frame. And then the next morning we woke up and we went from Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth. So that was kind of the final flying destination for us. Um we got picked up by the outfitter at the airport and then just drove right to Blaukrans, which means blue cliffs. And um you know, just pulled into the facility and, you know, just long, you know, 30 some hours of travel when, when it's all said and done, uh, when we did pull in, you know, super clean facilities, uh, I, I was just kind of like, this is going to be cool, right? This is, this. Is so what, what were your temperatures like when you landed in Johannesburg? Like, did it feel like, you, you know, where, where did it feel like you were as far as temperature and like, you know, what did it look like and, and what have you? So it was, uh, it's their winter. It kind of felt like our early fall, You're getting crisp mornings, um, you know, bright sun, but it's still cool. I, I, I was in, um, I wore Merino in a Kenai literally the entire trip. Um, it was still pretty cold. We never had any uh, t-shirt type days. Um, and to be real honest with you, when we got into Port Elizabeth, which is a port town, which is the first time I really got to see any outdoors in Johannesburg, the, you know, the hotel is in the airport and you just kind of shuffle your way over there. Um, but when we got to Port Elizabeth, it's a coastal town. So it had neat little um, buildings and waterfront type hotels and things of that nature but in the same breath if you look out into the coast there's the port so you've got cranes containers fuel liners it looked like a mini version of long beach harbor to me and I, was, I was gonna say you're probably going where's the spotted bass at <laughs> i was thinking how soon before we can fish real quick but <laughs> it was rough seas it wasn't a it wasn't a real mild coastline it was um it was it was pretty rough and that may have been winter um a lot of the guys I talked to about fishing over there didn't really want to talk fishing, just not their interest. You know, they're, they're just hunters and not a lot of crossover. But they did say that they do have a bass that lives up in there. Um, they didn't know the name. Uh, I think kind of a Cabrillo type, you know, some sort of sea bass in there. Um, but they do have yellowtail and tuna right on that coastline. So really similar to what we have here. Um, but... As we started going through there, you know, you kind of come out of that town, and then I believe we headed north to Blaukrantz about 45 minutes, and you go from big city to what appears like instant poverty, right? You're just kind of like, whoa, where did we go? Little tiny tin shacks and just really, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of you're out, you're in a different country take back moments where you're like, man, this is this is different, right? Very, very like dirt roads or paved roads, dirt roads, um, very little income, um, no gas of any kind of heating, no running water, just, you know, what would look like the slums. And 
you know, I asked a million questions because I, you know, I'm twofold. I'm trying to document this trip for them and I'm trying to kind of learn what I'm looking at. And they were just saying, you know, that's kind of, I don't know what the terminology was, but that's our, that's our low class of people or the people that can't afford to be in town and they just live on the outskirts. And a lot of those people are just helping the factories in town or, or staff or whatever. And, and I said, man, you know, what could you do to help? And they go, nothing. They're completely content and happy there. You know, it'd be like us driving through, a, I don't know, I guess it would be equivalent to us driving through maybe a low rent district of our town. Those people aren't unhappy. That's just what they know. And um, so from there, you know, we were out of town 10 minutes. You see all those little buildings and stuff. It just seemed very, very, for lack of better terms, third world. It wasn't, but it, that's how it looked, right? Very, very poor. Um, and then we started to get into what was, I guess, reminded me of maybe uh, brushed over hill country like in Texas. So when we were when we got to Blaukrantz, that ranch and that environment is referred to as bushveld. Bushveld, and I think the technical term is subtropical thicket. So it's completely choked with brush. Um, there's little senderos, little lanes, but for the most part, this wasn't classic Africa plains, like where you're looking out across different species of antelope and this and that. It was really just choked cactus and speck boom like like south texas yep. like some places where you can't see very far and a lot of mesquite but the, obviously a different bush but the similar feel of you know like open but super yes. thick yeah exactly like that and you could kind of you could kind of weed your way through it but you'd never be effective to stalk something in it that's you know, I think Texas sometimes gets kind of a bum rap as far as putting up stands and feeders and all that stuff. That's just those guys being extremely smart and intelligent how to hunt their game, right? Right. We're on the west, right. right? We get up with a pair of glasses. I can tell you what's happened for the next five, six miles in any direction. It's different, right? right? They're just smart people. They adapt. Um, right. And Let's take a quick break right here, Ryan. Guys, the title sponsor of my podcast is GoHunt.com Insider, and they're doing a 30-day free trial exclusive for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and click on the blue free trial button and go through the steps. It only takes a couple of minutes. You will be required to provide a credit card, but you will not be charged until after the free 30 days. You can cancel at any time within the first 30 days to prevent being charged. If you have any questions at all, you can email freetrial at gohunt.com and someone from the GoHunt team will promptly respond. This is your opportunity to see what all the buzz is about and the filtering 2.0 system and the application strategies for the Western Hunter. PhoneScope is a company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get yours now by using the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Okay, Ryan, go ahead. So, the you know, like just the topography there was slow rolling um, brush, if you will, and um, 
we got in there that night. We were a little bit late to do any hunting. And so we met the family that owns and runs Blaukrantz. Just incredible people. I was no surprise, but I was very, very, very impressed by the people, uh, the professionalism. Uh, they were just good hearted. They knew what they they're, they're very good at what they do. Um, and that first night, uh, they had made dinner and I kept tabs of every meal that we had, but the first night was kudu lasagna. So I've never seen a kudu, but I'm going to eat one. And, uh, the meat and the, the foods were unbelievable. I, I, I didn't, you know, I guess I didn't do any research before I got down there. Cause I'm just, I'm just a go with the flow kind of guy, but, uh, we ate everything we harvested everything nothing goes to waste you know in new zealand uh there's there's five times the amount of game that there's people so that it all can't get consumed there's just there's no way around that but here they don't let anything go to waste uh, what did the kudu taste like as far as was it a stringy meat was it a you know compared to uh north american game animal what would you compare it to uh, I think if I had to compare it any direction, uh, maybe like a lamb. It was not okay. nothing over there that we ate was uh, was was a firm meat or a hard meat. And they have also perfected how to eat it. I can tell you this: everything over there, every animal we ate, and I literally ate heart of beast, wildebeest, steambuck, gemsbuck, and yala, elan. I, I literally I ate everything. Um, nothing had that sharp, ruddy mule deer kind of funk to it and it did none of that stuff um even our elk sometimes you know you'll get an elk that has been pushed hard or you didn't have a chance to age it and it's just got a little you know gamey is probably not the right word but it's got a little a little flavor in it that's just not super palatable nothing was like that and i think part of it is because their animals don't stink you know they all laughed at me as soon as we'd shoot something i'd just stick my nose right in that critter and smell him <laughs> <laughs> you smell that animal? I'm like, yeah, I just, I'm curious, right? They, they don't have any odor. And they're like, no, our animals don't stink. And, um, why is that? I don't know. He said, um, he said they're antlered animals. Some of these places have fallow deer and some of them have, uh, like that, uh, that hog deer, that Indian hog deer. And he said, they will, um, he thinks it has to do with being an antlered animal. You know how elk will piss all over themselves in the rut and they've got glands, you know, mule deer and elk, they all have the glands on their back legs. Well, most of these animals have glands on their face and not to get off on that, but those glands varied in scent from coffee grounds to like a packet of sugar. Really, really strange. No musky odor like we're familiar with on our animals. Um, so, and I'm, I'm notorious for getting off on that. But so we spent the first night there, super comfortable accommodations. Um, the power is different for our stuff than their stuff. Everything is stubbed out in 220 and has like a big three prong adapter. So we did buy little conversion kits for everything. Uh, if you're going down there, you may want to make sure you have ways to convert. You can buy it at the airport from 220 to our 110 equipment, charging phones and batteries and stuff like that. Um, but they hunt out of these uh, Land Rovers, Toyota Land Rovers that are like little tiny crew cabs. They're like a, they would be like a small size truck for us. Um, all right-handed drive. And they all have big benches with stuff in the back where you can sit up and glass. 
uh, essentially shoot from if you need to, um, all that stuff. And the first morning, you know, there's four shooters, three boys, uh, and then the, the gentleman that uh, <clears throat> brought me with him. And I was going to jump in and, and film with um, and film with him first. And we didn't go two or three hundred yards in the first morning. And I'm like, hey, stop, stop. There's a something. And they just looked at me like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, what are you There's animals everywhere, you retard, right? And there, it was like, oh, what is that? And they go, that's a bush buck. I'm like, oh, okay. And we go, you know, look, hey, what's that one? That's an Inyala. That's an Elan bull. That's a zebra. And I'm like, wait a minute. We haven't moved the truck. I, what is going on? And they did have a, you know, something I probably should say too, just to, just to touch base on. But all of South Africa is fenced. They call it... Um, let me see if I can find the note on it. But it's essentially um, <clears throat> uh, it's a, it's an enclosure is what they call it. It's a it's a I don't think of the word, but so this ranch that we're hunting is a hundred thousand acres, and it's broken into uh, smaller parcels. And when I first got there, I was like, hey, I you know they could tell I was um, I had reservation with the fenced hunting. Just in just how it sounds sounds completely wrong and um to me and so they said hey let's let's just talk about it real quick it's really common with the americans to you know have reservation with it um they said first and foremost there's not an animal in africa that can be held by any fence in africa so like a kudu bull or an elan which is a 1200 pound antelope will literally jump an eight foot fence and i didn't quite believe it until i actually saw it and then all your smaller game will actually go right under it. The warthogs go through and bore holes under all those fencing and it goes under it. So the fence is, is kind of twofold. It helps, it helps them have those animals in a, a, a general boundary. Um, and then it really helps for the poachers that are coming in. Because some of these places have a, have a major, major, major problem with poaching. It's... It's got a different poaching has a different definition there than it does here. If you poach here, every hunter, every anti-hunter, and everybody that loves critters thinks you're the devil and you should never exist. That's just how it is here. Over there, it's an industry. It's what people do. People poach to to I'm not saying it's right, it's horrible, but it's it's just different. The word means something different over there. So the fence just kind of discourages um, people that have easy access onto the ranch. Anyway, that being said, every piece that we hunted, every piece of land that we hunted within that 100,000 um, was gigantic. The smallest piece that we were in was 20 miles square, so uh, 13,000 acres. Um, and uh, anyway, by the time we got done having the conversation, I felt a lot better about everything. And the reason I had that reservation is when I started seeing all those animals, I'm like, well, this is crazy. How are they even here? And that night I was able to do a little research too and just kind of look into it. So there's 20 million head of game in South Africa. 16 million head are on private land. So in 2013, the total number of hunted animals equaled 0.002% of the population on that 
on those properties in South Africa. So 50 years ago, there was 500,000 head of game in South Africa. So the, the fact that their model of conservation that has gone to protecting an environment, calling and hunting under numbers has grown the actual species of animals like we've never seen before. Our North American model of hunting where everybody owns the animals and we protect for a sustainable future doesn't really work over there twofold, right? We collectively as sportsmen and even anti-hunters are trying to, we're still, both of us are still trying to do the best for those animals and we respect that. Over there, it's not like that. You've got to protect them. You've got to put them in these environments. And <clears throat> if you're in South Africa saying you're hunting in a non-fenced environment, you're just between two fences. So it was one of those, you know, kind of swallow your pride, do exactly like they do. It's a, it's a beautiful hunt. Um, and I just, that was one of the things I had to get out of my head. I just, one question I have is, are the people poaching to poach just to kill the animals to say, you know, kind of screw you, or are they actually poaching to, uh, you know, try and bring food back to their families or are they poaching to, you know, for the hides for money or what, what is their purpose of poaching? I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think there's any vindictive hunting words like I'll show you. I don't think that happens over there. I think, um, when you, when you're dealing with the, uh, like say the, the elephant and the rhino, that's, that's an industry. It's a market. It's for sale of the horn and the ivory. That's probably the most brutal. The other animals that are being poached are being poached just to feed their family. Gotcha. Maybe another great example of that. In the 70s, Kenya banned hunting, right? 85% of their wildlife has been destroyed to poaching. But it's not, it's so, it's so hard for people to get their head around it. But the animals are gone because the industry left. The hunting industry, the people that were paying money, that were bringing dollars into that environment went away. So the people are poaching them to feed themselves naturally, right? It's not, you almost can't blame them in a situation like that. You, that's, that's what they do. So <clears throat> to but in other words, in, in your example there in Kenya, they're basically killing everything inside and eating it, and they're not the animals are not replenishing themselves. Therefore, there's not a balance of, uh, you know, give and take. It's it's just kill, 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 and then they've depleted their resource, and ultimately, you know, maybe one generation of people ate, but the next generation because there's no sporting dollars there to replenish the animals and and maybe uh conserve the animals um you know it basically just depletes the whole resource exactly you're, you're exactly right so um maybe another great way to put it is um you hunters conservationists people that are involved you and i are you and i are taking care of these animals right if that animal has value he'll be protected and He'll be um, preserved. He'll be essentially preserved, <clears throat> and there's dozens of examples of that in Africa. I mean, literally dozens of them. 
But if he has no value, I always use the analogy, if you have a, you have an Ace Hardware, right? And you bought in this, this special folding hose and you paid 20 bucks a piece for them, but nobody bought them. You just can't sell them. It's not worth anything. You're just going to get rid of them. That's just how it works. So if these animals have value, if there's benefits to them, they'll find a way to continue to breed them, watch out for them, sell a select few in order to care for the others. That's just, it's just real typical. It's how it goes. And I think that's part of the story that, that doesn't get told. And I'm going to run off on one little bunny trail real quick here because it's kind of a hot issue. Um, the whole cease of the lion thing, right? This doctor shoots this lion. And I can tell you firsthand the way I heard it, I'd have said the guy screwed up and he was a bad guy and all that stuff. They, you know, as a hunter, not having enough information, I felt like I got sold down the media path and he did a bad thing. It turned out to be perfectly fine and legit and all that stuff. They just never told that story. So in reaction to that, the U.S. government or U.S. Fish and Wildlife ban the import of big cats into the U.S. market on the 22nd of January. So, and we did that so they would quit hunting them. Well, 80% of large cats that get killed are killed by Americans. Americans hunt them more than the Europeans, uh, more than any other country. So in conversation with these guys, I'm like, so what happens with the cats? Like, what do you guys do if you can't sell them? And they go, we do exactly what anybody do if you can't sell them. You just eliminate them, right? You just take them out. Now it's a nuisance. So where we thought we were trying to help, we literally just went backwards because nobody got the full story or however that went down. And I'm not saying they're over there shooting all their lions, but they're not doing anything special to, you know, to, to, to protect protect them um and it's a sad sad situation but that's why i hope through some of this film i can kind of help tell the reality story from being there i'm still one trip to africa i'm still new i'm not trying to play the authority but it was real clear to me how that whole thing worked and man you gotta it needs to be said right it just needs to be said um for sure. Yeah. Anyway, sorry about that. I know I, uh, I know, no. I know I get off on those, but so that first day when we started hunting, um, we were chasing an Inyala bull, and in my opinion, it's the prettiest animal we harvested while we were over there. And I, I don't know. You almost have to see a picture of it. I have to send you a photo. But um, he like, describe the horns, describe the body, kind of what you're talking about. So he is considered a spiral horn. Um, and he has, you know, a black, maybe 18 to 24 inch spiral horn that goes straight up. Um, he's kind of a chocolate in color animal, long hair under his chin, longer tail. And then he's got a bunch of white pigment spots on him and some white stripes. This is just a gorgeous animal. Um, in this particular area, they don't have a lot of them. Um, but they are there and we thought it would be probably one of the more difficult hunts. We allotted a couple days to get them and we just happened to be traveling through an area and saw a bull standing there. And in the first literally like 30 minutes, we get in position, make the shot off it goes. And I'm like, really, is this how it works in South Africa? You guys just roll up and, 
get it done. And they were laughing because they're like, no, it never works like this, man. And <laughs> I didn't have time to get the tripod steadied or even, I mean, it just was like, it was a right now thing because he just stepped out in this one section between these two bushes and you would either A, got him or, you know, potentially never seen him again. <clears throat> what does an animal like that weigh? This Inyala was not too heavy, kind of like maybe like a big mule deer, 260, 280, something like that. And uh, so we got him set up, trophy shots. And, uh, you know, uh, because I, I, I love the film and video and all that stuff, None of my film stop, stops with the trophy shot, right? I want to see them gut it. I want to see them do all that stuff. I want to. I just want to. I want to see how they do it. But the way they set up for trophy shots, I will definitely take over here and continue to do that. And I know you've seen it a bunch where they, they'll kind of prop them up on all fours, right? Laying on their belly, balanced on their legs, a lot like how we'll do our deer or, you know, even our elk. But they can get it. They've got it so good to where they can just kind of settle them around and balance the head where it's kind of nose down square. And uh, I was just crazy impressed by how well those guys did that. You know, it was uh, it was pretty cool to see them position those animals and get them all straight. And um, again, now, do they have a tracker on the vehicle and a professional hunter? Yeah. And so as soon as that happens, people are just going to work. Yes. Pulling, pulling, pushing and pulling and dragging and all that stuff. Yeah. And they've been at it a long time. So they, they really know what to do. They communicate a lot without speaking, but we did have a professional hunter. Um, me, the shooter, or I'm sorry, me, the videographer, the shooter. And then we had another guest with us in the tracker. Um, and the, and the trackers are just phenomenal people, right? You know, they're, they're great hunters. They, they do the bulk of the grunt work. You know, they, they open gates or, it doesn't matter what it, they just do everything. They're good. What language do they speak? Hosa. So it sounds like um, sounds sounds like Hosa H O S A, but I think it's spelled X X H O S H A. I think uh, I'm probably sure I'm saying that wrong, but it's Hosa is the language. And then, does the professional hunter speak with the trackers, or do they communicate with sign language, or what? I mean, what? How do they communicate? No, there's. Um, they speak very, very good with the trackers. So they, most, all of our outfitters spoke Hosa and Afrikaans. So Afrikaans is the kind of the. Um, I'm probably going to say that wrong too, but kind of the language of the whites. Hosa is kind of the language of the blacks. And, you know, because we're so sensitive right now with the whole white and black thing, you, you know, you, to hear him say the blacks this or the blacks that, I was like, oh, you know, hopefully he doesn't hear you. And they're like, no, it's not like that. It's very, very, it's so much different than how we are here. Um, to be called black is not offensive, not in any way. And I don't think it should be offensive here either. It's not meant to be. But um there's there's a different culture even though they work together every day there's a different kind of language and dialect um but our professional hunter on this trip and our tracker were literally best friends they went to school together uh, all the family worked at the lodge they were just i had a blast with those guys and they could speak enough english to where i could say inyala bull and he'd be like yes or he'd say inyala female or Grace Buck, or we, he, he could communicate with us really well. It wasn't like it was a struggle, and um, you know, they, he was he was part of the team. Uh, 
in some places, those guys were running the show. You know, they were just really, really good. Incredible. As far as, far as when they started skinning and getting the animal on the ground and gutting and all of that stuff, what did you notice? None of it happens in the field like we would do. You know, um, we the only time it would happen is like we like if you had an animal that was so big and you couldn't load it um, in the vehicle, they would gut it. But um, I guess the so we would all the trucks had wenches in them. So when something got down, if we could cut our way to it with a vehicle, we would drive the truck to it. And I mean, driving over anything and everything They just those trucks are mean. Um, what kind of t- uh, I'm asking so many not, questions, but what? What kind of ply tires and like, um, it's, it's interesting to go to places like that and see what people do with their vehicles. And you're like, I never even thought of doing something like oh, that. Oh yeah. You know, and I, I think too, is where I'm always taken back. We have these big old American cushy vehicles. That's what we drive. We have lots of highway, lots of open roads. You, you don't see a full size vehicle anywhere down there. And so they're those little crew Land Rovers. They're all just decked out with all the stuff in the back and wenches and stuff. And I didn't really pay attention to the tire, but it was a pretty heavy-duty, all-terrain tire. But those little tiny trucks are one-and-a-half-ton trucks. Wow. So, our, you know, like our, you know, our big three-quarter-ton pickups are just gigantic, and this thing will hold double the load, and, you know, it's super good ride and all that stuff. So, but we would load all those animals and we would go back not too far from the lodge. There was a big cleaning facility where they actually do the gutting, do the skinning. They do all the caping. They actually turn ears and lips. And then they will, depending on what it is, process their own game there. Or they'll freeze it or chill it. And a guy from Port Elizabeth will come up and get it. And then they will sell it in town. Nothing at all goes to waste over there. Um, we had killed this in Yala Bull, and we were on our way out, and there was a gentleman working on fence. He was just hemming up fence because they have some goats. And we stopped, and they said something in Afrikaans, and we slid out of there, and we gave this guy the guts. And I'm not talking heart, lungs, liver. I'm talking the intestines. And because I got to know, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, "That's he'll eat that. That's his, you know. I'm like, is he excited about that? He's like, he's thrilled about it. I'm like, wait, right? So (laughs) he said he'll take that and he'll flush those intestines and make what we would know as tripe or something. And I was just like, that's awesome, right? That's that's (laughs) too cool. But And then we'd go back to camp and the heart, lungs, and liver would – the staff would take them. They would want to – you know, they would do whatever. There's this tremendous amount of game, right? There's more There's more protein available for everybody than you can imagine. Um, so they can only keep so much there. That's why they sell it in town. So if you go over there and you buy, let's just say you buy an animal that costs you $100, that outfitter may make $200 by selling the meat, selling the hide or, or whatever. Plus they keep so many people happy and fed you know, that are just staff people or helpers or people on the road or whatever. Um, it just, let's take, let's take another quick break mm-hmm. here. Real game calls featuring the elk reel. Real. 
Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out ElkReel.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.elkreel.com. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. Okay, so when you say they go to town and sell some of this stuff, is there like a farmer's market looking type of place or a plaza or, you know, where do they go? We didn't get... I never got to see it, but there's a gentleman that comes up or several, I don't know, but there's people that come up from Port Elizabeth in like a little pickup and they just load all these carcasses in the back of their truck. They give an, they give X fee to the landowner, right? So yeah, I don't know if it's a kudu, he may get like 40 bucks or 50 bucks or something like that. And then he'll take it into town, he'll butcher and process it. And then they'll just literally sell it storefront. You could go in anywhere, <clears throat> I mean any gas station anywhere, and buy a pound of kudu or a pound of impala or – What did it cost? You know, Nothing. You know, their, their dollar is the rand and it's 14 to 1 American. So, I mean you can't believe how far your dollar went. But I, I would think, you know, if we were par- paying American dollars, maybe 15 cents for a pound of, of kudu. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, everywhere you go down there too, you can buy biltong. And biltong is their version of our beef jerky or our jerky. And they serve it a bunch of different ways. You can buy different ways where it's like chipped, like it's really small. You can buy it like in a sausage link or you can buy it in kind of in jerky form like ours. And I, you know, in the States, jerky is like $25 a pound is kind of the going rate. You could buy a pound of biltong back there for like, I don't know, buck twenty, buck thirty, something like that. You know, and it's just crazy. Um, So we take all that stuff back. They process it. We go back to camp, have a beautiful lunch. The guys I went with are just—they're five-star guys. They can adapt in any environment, but you know they do it upright. And this facility was really nice. and then, you know, just before you know it, it was just one hunt after the next. And, you know, about day three, I was so settled in and I was starting to starting to kind of develop what I would call a game eye where I could see, I could actually identify that's that's a gemsbuck or that's a blessbuck or that's clearly a bushbuck male. And, I, you know, going there, I couldn't have identified or told, probably even pronounced some of the names so it really, I think that's what gets you into the swing of love in Africa is you start to kind of identify the spaces that hold these animals and the particular environments that actually hold them. Um, we had rain a couple of days in a row and we woke up in the morning. I'm like, hey, what are we doing today? We had um, ultimately have four bush bucks to, to harvest and we hadn't seen very many. And he said, it's a really good day for bush buck. 
right? It's overcast, everything's wet, and the bush bucks will step out into those clearings and they'll feed. And I just wanted to tell you the story to give you an example, the game numbers. So we we kind of pull into this area. I driven by this area every day for, you know, three or four days. <clears throat> and uh, the tracker stops us and he says, bush buck male. Not a very not a very big animal, maybe the size of your coos deer. Are you on foot or are you in the vehicle? We're on the vehicle now. So most everything, you get on the truck and you kind of drive so you can kind of see. No different than us glass in here, right? We kind of stop and they, right. they'll tap the hood of the truck or they'll have a little whistle or something. So we stop and at about 200 yards, there's this bush buck standing there staring at us. And this little bush buck is just a double tough, mean little antelope. They're kind of elusive in the fact that you don't see them a lot, but they're pretty bold. They're not real spooky. So we get out and kind of try to make a stock. Well, I'm looking across there going, this thing's going to bolt, man. What are you doing? Just set up and, and shoot him. And so we sneak down. We get about 90 yards where we get in a good, comfortable position. We make a really nice shot. And um, I was like, holy cow, man, that's. Like how, you know, cause I don't know. I was like, man, I would have never got any closer. Right. I'd have laid the pack down. I'd have set him up, you know, I just yeah. thumped him and sniped him. Yeah. And they, they just know how these animals react. And I was impressed by that. So <clears throat> we go over now we had driven by this place a bunch and it was a nice little bush buck. And I started asking questions. I'm like, well, you know, is it just chance that we saw him here, saw him here? And he's like, no, no, this is a very much a bush buck area. And I'm like, so have you killed bush bucks here before? He goes, yeah, we've killed tons of bush bucks here before. And I'm like, well, how old is this bush buck? And he's like, oh, it's about a nine-year-old. I go, it's a nine-year-old bush buck. You've killed a bunch in this one spot. Like, what? I can't get my head around that. Like, if we crawl into a canyon and we see a real nice mule deer or a coos and we shoot him, I'm not tomorrow going to have a real nice coos deer back in there. It's just, that's not how it works, right? Maybe in a year or somebody chasing some does. But for the most part, I've kind of, I've, I've removed that buck for a while. But he said a new bush buck will move back into that environment in like no time, you know, super fast. And there's animals in that area that they've never, ever seen, never seen a human that are just literally dying of old age. And it was so very, very difficult for me to get my head around how much game is in this environment. Uh, these guys shoot on an average, they shoot a, a, a hundred kudu bulls a year on this hundred thousand acres. And wow. he said, by the time, by the time, you know, hunting season is done, we roughly hunt 200 days a year. By the time it's done, they have to call maybe four or 500 kudu cows just to have enough sustainable feed for what's on there. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I, you know, I was still thinking maybe you guys are putting animals on here. He goes, we don't put anything on here. It's born and raised here. It's not, you, you, it's not in captivity. They're just here. This is where they want to be. This is where they live. And it's different for us. There's just not, there's just not the amount of game here that there is there. So... You know, by the time we were done with all the, you know, we had 30 some animals that we took down there in Blaukrantz and I was going, whoa. And he's like, man, it would have helped us if you had 300 animals laying there. Right. It's it's not what you're used to. And that's what's hard about it. But really, you've seen the amount of game. You see how it goes. We will literally have to go through and call animals in order to get us right. Is there not 
uh, predation? I mean, do they not have a lot of predation there? Very little. So, and the predators that are there, um, some of the big predators that are there are protected. So, um, in this particular place in Blaukrantz, there was no lions. They do have leopards on there, but they are protected down there, so they don't shoot them. And the only other one that would really eat some of that game is the caracal. And the caracal is kind of figured to get its way over to more of the livestock, a little easier prey. So <clears throat> very little predation because uh, that's what I thought. I said, you guys got bigger, meaner predators, and you got to just go through them. But, you know, the jackals will eat the small stuff. You know, the jackals will get a diker or they'll get something like that. But for the most part, really, it's not a, you know, they don't have enough predators to do the job that sportsmen actually have to do at this point. Um, yeah, it it was super fun. And so it was kind of bittersweet to leave Blaukrantz because we had such a good relationship with those people. And we took everything from, you know, from warthogs to elan to gemsbuck. A gemsbuck looks like our oryx, the one you see down there in New Mexico on the military yeah. base. Um, yeah. And then bushbucks, dikers, blessbuck, wildebeest, blacks and blues, and uh, hartebeest. I'm sure. What caliber of rifles did your hunters, um, what were they using mostly? So the three boys were all shooting a 25 odd six with a 100 grain bullet, which um, <clears throat> was very effective. It worked good. I personally would tell you it's a little bit light if you're going to go over there and shoot anything more than, say, an Inyala bull. And <clears throat> real quick, you know, because you're, you probably like that too, but so over there you have bulls and cows and rams and ewes. And the distinction is if an animal is 70 kilos or greater, he's a cow and a bull. If he's 70 kilos or less, he's a, um, a ram and a ewe. The only difference is the inyala. So the inyala male is a bull and the inyala female is a ewe. Fun facts from Africa. Um, that had to take a little while to get used to. It did because it would, you know, I would, you know, I would say male or female because I didn't. I, I mean, I, I still would. I'm not used to calling it a ram or a you. And, um, but when we started looking at some of the smaller animals, you could hear them say springbuck ram, springbuck ram, or springbuck ram. And then I would hear, you know, it's a eland bull. I'm like, where? What, what draws the line? Like, where is it at? And um, one of the gals that was working there. Um, got me up to speed on that. And seventy kilos is what is how many pounds? Seventy kilos. Know? Here, I got a, I got this killer little app. Um, I'll tell you right now. It's called. You ever use the Convert app? No. I was always. At, it's actually called Convert. I use. Um, I use it to find out what like acres is equal to hectares and miles. Yeah. Uh, you know all that stuff. So, uh, what were we just saying? Uh, 70 kilos. Kilos, so it'd be measurement of not volume, length, speed. No. I think it's 1.1 or something like that. Um, I'm getting off track because apparently my brain is so small I can't do two things at one time. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of neat. And from there, from that point there in Blaukrantz, we traveled into the – oh, yeah, i got to tell you one other quick story. So uh, the owner – of Blaukrantz. His name's Arthur Rudman, him and his wife, Trinette. <clears throat> they had a, a doctor friend that came down that used to live next to him. He now lives on the outskirts of Kruger National Park. And 
I was saying, you know, they have to call a tremendous amount of animals. So his buddy annually comes down and visits with him every year. And he was going to have him call six Impala and he was going to keep the meat. And then he said, Hey, we've got a, uh, we've got a kudu cow with horns that we've never seen, but it's in this general area. Um, if you see her, we need to get her taken out of there. Right. She's got, she's got horns. It's just weird. So nobody's ever seen this thing alive. Got trail cam photos of it. And he shows up the first day and it's the first kudu that steps out and he shoots this kudu cow. Well, we bring it back to the skinning section. We're all kind of there. And I, I'm just completely and totally, totally blown away by this animal. So you may have seen on Instagram, but this cow has got a spiraled horn. Um, no, let me rephrase. Kudus normally have like a spiral horn that goes up. This thing's like a mouflon sheep where they come out of her head, down around, and then up underneath her chin. And the horn was actually grown into the bottom of her chin three or four inches. And, you know, technically, if you would, could score a female, it would be the new world record kudu. So it had a 58-inch right hand right horn and a 55-inch left horn. And it, she wouldn't have made it much longer. She was pretty run down. Her condition was pretty poor. And they wound up harvesting it. Um, and Arthur had been on that place for 70 years. He says it's the first one he's ever seen. And when we got to you know, kind of gutting and cleaning on it, we found that, you know, she did have um, like a uterus and then she had some testicles, essentially having both mommy and daddy parts. And it was just this crazy hermaphrodite freaking nature. And uh, I'm looking at the photo right now on Instagram. So those horns are not supposed to be curled like that. No, no. They're supposed to be straight. They go straight and they spiral straight up. That's an unbelievable trophy. That's amazing. 55-inch, 58-inch ride horn. Yeah, and I was telling, I was going, guys, I, I'm sorry to be all crazy right now, but this is really, really, really special. So I was able to grab some film, you know, kind of the whole process. It's a business down there. When they're, you know, when something gets to the ground, they, they take care of the meat and all that stuff. And so I'm kind of in the shuffle trying to, uh, you know, get some footage, but just a really neat experience uh, to have been there when that thing hit the ground. I told him, I said, it's a huge honor for me to be here to actually see this because it is so very rare. Um, and then when they finally did take the hide off, the year off, I said, I really want to get some photos. It doesn't, doesn't do it justice with it on the head, but really, really, really neat animal. Yeah, it looks like an amazing animal. So, that's crazy looking. And that's the first one that he saw and boom, he shot it. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, nobody's ever seen it. I kept calling him the king of the kudu and he was just, he just ate it up. It was fun. What would you think if you were on a sheep hunt and that thing strolled out? Oh my gosh, like, that's what? crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, quick question for you. Uh, looks like, and for the listeners out there, go to Whitebone Creations on Instagram uh, to see these photos. It looks like a lot of your crew... Uh, was wearing uh, Kuyu. Uh, I'm curious how the Kuyu gaiters and just how your Kuyu gear held up uh, there. It was uh, it was great. I was kind of surprised to see that there was uh, almost no outfitters over there wearing Kuyu. So I'm going to actually fix that. I'll get with Jason and see if we can't get those guys hooked up. But a lot of those guys are wearing it because maybe that's another great piece to touch on. But I didn't really know what we were getting into over there. And I just didn't, 
it wasn't my place to start calling around and asking as the camera guy. So I knew it was going to be winter and I knew I was going hunting. So I took all my cold weather gear from the super down and the keen eyes and all my Merino. I brought like five or six pairs of gloves and beanies. And I just, I just kind of threw it all in there. Cause you know how well the coup you packed, it's easy. And then I threw a 6,000 ultra day pack knives, gloves, first aid kits, Nalgene bottles. And I can tell you right now, you don't ever need to bring a pack there. You don't ever need to bring a knife. You don't ever need any of that stuff because it's just you just won't have the opportunity to use it in South Africa in these events. So I hauled around a lot of gear I didn't need. But um, the boys didn't bring hardly any cold weather gear. So it was I was fortunate in the fact that I had so many extra everything, right? So one of them had a Kenai, one of them had a Peloton. And they wore that because they didn't have any warm gear. And it was really good. I have fallen in love with the Gator. It was actually the very first Kuyu piece I bought like four years ago. The Yukon Gator. Yeah, and I think that's what it is. It was, um, I don't even think they make that particular one anymore. But you are going to kick through a bunch of brush and a bunch of cactus, you know, down in that, in the Eastern Cape. Tons of it. And I have an issue where I kick through sage or whatever and i take and i tend to roll my pants they get twisted up at the bottom and the gator to me just keeps me all together right um yeah. and even with the rain and you know sitting on the back of that truck we were constantly in rain and um i i i did bring a set of chugach and we did wear it but uh, the gator for me was great and it was really really good i think if you were in the summer um is it the tiburon is that the yeah i just think it'd be the best piece everything does have a thorn so i think you need to be aware of that uh if sounds like southern arizona to it me. does man everything pulls back right <laughs> everything pulls back the bushes we were hunting in and around was speck boom that's the number one forage it's a succulent they eat the leaf and the stalk and everything and then there was a lot of acacia and plum wood and that acacia looks like it has a huge white thorn and then cactus so as to where kuyu's fantastic ultralight mountain clothing it's not the greatest for pushing brush down there i would say great on your top gear um on the bottom stuff maybe have a gator or have a brush pushing pant or 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 something um but it all worked out good i didn't i didn't wind up tearing anything or i loved it <laughs> 